Earlier this week, the country watched as the United States president walked across Lafayette Square outside the White House to stand in front of St. John's Episcopal Church, hold a Bible, and take a photo. In a speech from the Rose Garden just moments earlier, President Trump threatened to deploy troops to control protests if state and local authorities did not immediately regain control of their streets. For Trump to make that trek to the church, flanked by the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, among others, law enforcement officials forcibly and aggressively cleared peaceful protesters from the area. That moment, which we brought you an episode about on Tuesday, has not faded from the public's mind as the week has gone on. The president has reiterated his assertion that he has the power to deploy active duty military in the U.S., That suggestion has been met with an increasing chorus of rebukes from former military and public officials. Meanwhile, protests have continued across the country. And while they've been largely peaceful, protests here in the capital have been met with a significant federal law enforcement response. Taken together, the events of the past week and a half, including the response from our federal government, have painted a picture that raises flags for intelligence officials who've been trained to detect countries showing signs of decline or of democratic regression. Former intelligence officials told the Washington Post that the unrest and the administration's militaristic response are among many measures of decay that they would flag if they were writing assessments about the United States for another country's intelligence service. Historically, the U.S. has urged restraint or denounced crackdowns against protesters and vulnerable groups in other countries. So the federal response to civil unrest, President Trump's threat to deploy the military inside the U.S., aggressive law enforcement tactics to quash protests, all of this presents serious questions about the president's approach to power. Can Trump use tactics at home that the U.S. condemns abroad? What are the risks of politicizing the U.S. military? And what insight can we gain from how other countries have emerged from crisis? This is Can He Do That, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. I'm Allison Michaels. National security reporter Greg Miller talked to intelligence officials about this moment in the United States and its potential implications. So on Monday, we saw Trump threaten to use active duty troops to quash violence in U.S. cities. Protesters were forcibly cleared out of Lafayette Park outside of the White House. And Trump then staged this strange photo op in front of a church holding a Bible. And this, according to your reporting, taken together, raised alarm for some CIA analysts. So let's start with the basics and then talk about how they apply to what we've seen here in the U.S. over the past week or so. So why are CIA analysts notable voices in this case? What are they trained to detect when it comes to collecting intelligence about how a country functions? Right. So this is something that all CIA analysts and even the case officers, the spies that we send overseas, this is a core part of their job is to is to watch events unfold in other countries, not ours, and report back. They are our eyes and ears. They are the ones who are supposed to inform the president and other leaders of our country how things are going, which countries are in trouble, what, what forces are pulling apart societies in other parts of the world. So this is something that they focus on throughout their careers. It's just that they are accustomed to looking abroad rather than internally at the United States and seeing these things unfold. So what specific kinds of signs do analysts look for to indicate dysfunction? 
So it could be anything, of course, that you can cut across all aspects of society and governance, but racial tension is one. An, an inability of a government or a leadership to unite a country, the divisions within a country, different parts of a population pulling in different directions. Dysfunction can mean government's inability to handle basic tasks to deliver what governments deliver, including for an example, in this instance that we're talking about, a government's ability to protect its people from an illness that is spreading across the globe. So then how does the U.S. typically use these findings to inform our foreign policy? I know it's different for every country, but generally speaking, what do we do with this information? This is information that's supposed to help us advance our agenda and our foreign policy as a country. So we stand for the spread of democracy. And through much of American history, we have seen ourselves as a symbol of human rights and the dignity of the individual and things like this. U.S. governments try to advance these issues in part by understanding the dynamics of other countries and what's working with us and what's working against us. Who is on our side? Who is not? And trying to advance those that are. And how does the U.S. at least historically treat countries where there are crackdowns on protesters or human rights that are being infringed upon? That's something that we constantly lecture other countries about. We, the United States, under almost every administration in our lifetimes, has registered complaints, if not sanctioned other countries for human rights abuses, for crackdowns on protesters, for treatment of dispossessed groups. Even in the Trump administration, this administration is constantly lecturing Iran about cracking down on protesters, China about cracking down on protesters and, and vulnerable groups. Generally speaking, then, has that approach changed under the Trump administration? You're essentially saying not, not so much. No, even just this week, we saw Secretary of State Pompeo in, on Twitter lecturing China about interfering and preventing a vigil, an annual, annual vigil in Hong Kong commemorating the Tiananmen Square uprising 31 years ago. So even as American cities were increasingly engulfed in protests and in some cases riots, the Trump administration was scolding China for preventing a vigil from happening. Given all of that context, let's talk about what we saw this week and why it raised concern for many CIA analysts. What have these analysts, what have some of your sources said? Yeah, so it's a combination of things. So what they're looking at in, in the United States now, and I want to really want to emphasize this is not something they're doing their jobs at CIA, right? The CIA is an, an intelligence service that is only looking at foreign countries. So I'm talking with former CIA officials and getting their reactions, collecting their reactions to what they're seeing unfold here. And I think it's important to emphasize that. But what they're seeing is very familiar to them, especially for analysts and case officers who spent time in or tracking events in very troubled parts of the world, in Africa or the Middle East or in, in parts of Southeast Asia. So what, they, what they've seen, one, is just the violence, two, it's just spiking racial tensions, but also the reaction of the leadership here and Trump's posture, literally his posture, the way he held up that Bible in that photo op across from the White House at St. John's Episcopal Church, I spoke to one CIA officer who's, who compared that to things that he had seen by dictators in the Middle East, in despots. Another striking part of Monday's events of that photo op 
was the inclusion of the Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, and the commander of the Joint Chiefs, General Mark Milley, during Trump's walk across Lafayette Park and then to stand nearby during that photo. Can you explain why it's unusual to see these defense leaders participate in an ultimately political act? Right. And so that's a really important point. And I'm glad you raised that because that's another tell. That's another measure that CIA analysts are looking for. Is the leader of a country using the military and its military power, might, and resources against its own population. And that's what it started to look like here this week in the United States. So seeing Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, parading through the streets of Washington in his battle fatigue uniform, not his dress uniform, hearing the Secretary of Defense Esper on a call with governors describing U.S. cities as a battle space that needed to be dominated. Those were deeply disturbing messages to CIA analysts who have seen autocrats and dictators in other parts of the world use their militaries to hold power and suppress populations. You've touched on this, but what really are the risks of politicizing the military? Oh, of gosh, the risks are enormous, right? One of our founding principles is that we are a democracy and those institutions of government, including the military, serve the citizens of the country. They do not serve the leadership. They Their loyalty is to the Constitution, not a specific individual. So it really starts to distort that when you have a leader turning those levers of power against a population, even in a small case, a relatively small instance, using them to clear protesters for the leader to be able to stage a photo op. I think that was seen by so many as an abuse of power and a violation of those principles. Because essentially every American citizen needs to know that actions of the military are being done in the interest of preserving our, our way of life and that it's it's lawful and in accordance with the Constitution. And so any sort of flags that might seem that that is not the case could be concerning for, for experts who study how countries unravel. Absolutely. The right to gather, the right to speak, these are embedded in the Constitution. And if you're using the military in, in violation of that, then you're using it against its sworn purpose, which is to defend the Constitution. Since that moment on Monday, what's emerged over the past few days about the defense secretary's willingness to be involved in that photo op? So the reaction to that scene, Trump's trip across Lafayette Square to the church, I think really animated a, a lot of very strong reaction in the United States across the national security community here. And so you saw the the General Milley and Secretary of Defense Esper quickly backpedaling and trying to distance themselves from that. Right away the next day, after the headlines had surfaced, you have anonymous defense officials trying to get the word out, clearly acting on their behalf, saying, look, those guys did not know they were being used to be marching across the street for a Trump photo op. And then they even went further and said that they disagreed with the idea, at least for now, of using active duty forces to try to suppress protests or outbreaks of violence in the United States. Right. We saw Esper issue a statement saying that the use of active duty forces to quash unrest is unnecessary at this stage, which was a bit of a departure from Trump. And Chairman Milley also sent a message to military commanders saying that every member of the armed forces wears an oath to defend the Constitution. And yet still, they're not the only leaders who've warned against the domestic use of military aggression. Who else has raised concerns over the past few days? It's become a chorus, right? We've seen it from Admiral Mullen, who was the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Trump's former defense secretary, Jim Mattis 
Mattis, perhaps most strikingly, spoke out against this. He felt compelled to issue a lengthy statement, not only denouncing what had happened on Monday, but denouncing the divisive tendencies of this president. Okay, so to be clear, though, at this point, 1,400 active duty soldiers have been deployed to bases near Washington. Do we know why? They were positioned there in, at the behest of the administration to prepare for possible intervention. That happened before people, including Esper and Millie, understood or gauged the reaction to what was happening around them. So, yes, they were. They, they, my understanding is that they've been positioned but not actually deployed in any way so far. But I think that the, the, the response from people within the national security community, including Mattis, including Mullen, has had a huge influence. And yet, even without the military on the street, there's still this strong presence here in Washington, D.C., of federal agents, troops, and police. Can you tell me about who's leading the charge on that effort and what we've seen as a result of such a heavy police presence in D.C.? It's really remarkable, isn't it? I, for the first time, actually went downtown D.C. last night on the early part of the evening to just see for myself what it looked like. And walking around our building at the Washington Post, there was a Hummer, a, a military vehicle right parked on the corner in an intersection right next to the Post building. Not to mention, obviously, the lines of, of police and armed forces surrounding the White House now. Attorney General Barr has played a super important role. We had a story in the paper today about how he is operating out of a command post at FBI, and he is in charge of implementing all of combining these various police and law enforcement entities into a kind of a guard force that is now everywhere in the in the downtown part of the city. So clearly this is a dramatic and significant moment in this country. What do we know about President Trump and his approach to leadership that explains why he's turning to the military as a tool amid the nation's unrest. Obviously, President Trump has defined himself as a law and order president with all of the connotations of that term, the historic connotations of that term. As somebody who has built much of his administration's agenda around keeping others out of the United States and having a great deal of trouble understanding or expressing sympathy for racial and ethnic minorities in this country and the plight that they face. We saw that in Charlottesville and we've seen it this week. It's it's hard for him. He admires, praises strong men around the world. He is constantly praising Putin. He is constantly praising others who he thinks lead with strength and dominate their space. And so to him, I think this is just part of how you do that. Militaries should be there for leaders to use as they are according to their will. But have we seen this before? Have we seen a U.S. president use the military in this way, seemingly as a tool while suggesting that the nation's unrest may rise to the level of military force? Is this unprecedented? The military has been used in some uh, infrequent cases throughout U.S. history, but I don't think any of us in our lifetimes have seen something unfold quite like this, where the president of the United States was agitating for, so so actively for the use of active force military to suppress protests and violence around the country without trying to unite, without also trying to speak, use words and symbols of trying to settle or calm that, right? He is both fanning this violence in some way in this in these protests, while also threatening, vowing, and trying to use military and armed forces to crack down on it. So while the use of the military might have some precedent, the notion of doing it while the country is so divided and not necessarily using words to 
unify the country and messages to bring the country together, that part is more unusual. It's within a president's authority, is my understanding, to constitutionally and legally and in dire situations to employ the U.S. military if you had to, to protect the country and its institutions. But I think part of the problem here is that is seen as a desperate measure, a last resort, and would only come in a circumstance like this after you've tried to calm the country, after you've appealed and signaled that you understand these tensions and tried to address the causes of that. And without any of that seeming to happen here, I think that's what people find so without precedent, in, in, at least in our lifetimes. All right, Craig, last question for you. We started this conversation talking about the ways in which some analysts see parallels between what happens when societies unravel abroad and what may be potentially starting to happen in some way here in the U.S. On perhaps a more hopeful note, do any of those same sources have insight into how countries overcome some of these challenges or what lessons we can draw? Yeah, that's a great question. I was trying to ask some of these people, like, you're an analyst. What if you were working for a foreign intelligence service and writing assessments of the United States. And they, they were, their assessments were grim, right? They were saying, look, we would be writing that this is a country that is fraying, or populations are pulling apart, where the leadership is, doesn't seem capable of holding things together, where our basic functions are breaking down, including the spread of the coronavirus uh, in the Greg, United I States. Greg, I asked for something positive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm sorry, I want to get that in. So, well, look, I, I think it's also important to note that these are CIA officials who are also very patriotic. And as troubled as they are by what they see in the United States, I would think it's a mistake to imply that they're without hope or think that the United States is a lost cause. They're just troubled by the trajectory of the United States and certainly don't think we're beyond turning things around. And I think they would point to other moments in our history that were also very troubled in the 1960s racial unrest and the, and the reactions to the Vietnam War. I think that the countries overcome that and they would point to those prior episodes as things that we've emerged from and in some cases were made stronger by. All right, Greg, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? You can find more reporting about the state of our country at WashingtonPost.com. Thanks so much for listening. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by Ariel Plotnick with logo art by Loren Boglio and theme music by Ted Muldoon.